0: Chango.
1: been listening to your podcast like, I don't know, since 2014, something like that. It's uh, almost six in the morning now, I'm in my fucking kitchen, tripping um, on MDMA. A friend of mine, uh, first time by the way, a friend of mine uh, brought me a little bit, he likes to go to raves, techno parties and so on, so I took 80 milligrams and I feel fucking fantastic the last three years have been tremendously difficult and uh, I couldn't manage to find my way and uh, it's unbelievable uh, what we take for granted I can't remember when was the last time I yawned I was so tense so I wanted to tell you that I appreciate you very much your podcast And I hope you keep doing it. And I don't know, man. See you on the other side, whatever. Oh, yeah. One more thing for everybody else listening to the podcast. I came to the realization during this evening of dancing in my fucking kitchen that the only thing that stands between good creation and love is our fear. That's it. Peace, people. Ain't
2: that the truth. Fear stands between us and pretty much everything. And what do we really have to fear, right? Death? Nah, it's coming, whether you fear it or not. So you can write that one off. Uh, there's no point in fearing it because your fear... Fear is a response, of an avoidance response, right? We're afraid of predators as a way to be vigilant and not get eaten, but... There's no sense in fearing something that's unavoidable. Grief, loss, sadness, age, death. Those things are coming, whether you like it or not, one way or another. So no point in fearing them. Uh, I think as we get older, we, we start to economize on our emotions Uh, At least ideally, that's what we do. It reminds me of that thing I've probably talked about before when I said to Stanley one day we were driving somewhere and I said, If you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? And he was like, Well, eliminate all the dead people because I don't fantasize about things that can't happen. And I thought, (laughs) What a like practical approach to fantasy, you know? Like, uh, not even going to think about that uh, because it's not in the realm of possibility. So. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So why waste our energy fearing things that are unavoidable? Humiliation is one of those, by the way. Failure. Dancing in your kitchen is an excellent discipline, I would say, with or without the assistance of 80 milligrams of MDMA. It doesn't really matter as long as you are dancing in your kitchen. This episode is kind of a dance in the kitchen. Uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table with two lovely women here in Crestone, Kizen and Janet. Uh, they live together in a re what would I say restore? They they I guess Kizen with her ex partner many years ago uh, bought a cabin that was falling apart, a log cabin that was falling apart out in the valley somewhere. And they numbered all the logs, disassembled it, trucked it to this new location, and put it back together with new mortar and gave it a new life. And it's super cozy and wonderful. And that's where we were sitting at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range here in Crestone. They have been around for a long time. I think around we talk about it, but I think it's forty, 45 years, something like that in in this part of Colorado around here um, and and in the town of Crestone for I think 30 or so. Um, but I, I, I may be wrong. you'll hear it in the conversation. but it's a long time. and um, they sort of ran the Crestone Eagle, which is the local newspaper for decades. And uh, so, th- fair to say that uh, that they are pillars of the community, and uh, and highly respected and loved and admired, and uh, you'll hear why. They're awesome people, and I really enjoyed getting to sit down and chat with them for a while. Again, this is uh, an amazing gift that comes to me by way of the podcast. Right, the fact that I have a podcast, I have you, an audience. Um, not only numbers, you know, that I can go to people and say I've got so many thousands of listeners, but also that at this point, after 11, 12 years, however long I've been doing this, uh, we've winnowed it down. I don't want a bigger audience. I want a quality audience. And that's exactly what I have. I, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, but I know that they're awesome uh, there may be some new newcomers coming in, and, and you're most welcome. But I think most of you have been around for quite a while, and um, that makes me really, really happy that we have a community um, that's that's been around for so long. And you know, I don't know what would you say joins us? Uh, it's not that you always agree with me, it, it's impo- I don't always agree with me, nobody always agrees with me. I am as full of shit as anybody else but I think it's a tolerance for being full of shit, right? It's, it's it's, you know, I've been thinking about how disagreement in 2023 so often is taken as betrayal. And I think it's because We live in this age of identity politics and, you know, identity everything. Everything is based, every fucking comment I read online starts off, well, speaking as a, you know, person of color, you know, a trans person of color. Like, it doesn't matter what you're speaking as. What are you saying? I may agree, I may disagree, but who you are has nothing to do with the strength of comment you're making, the the argument you're making, the observation you're making. And I feel like so many people are couching what they say. They're framing it in the identity of the person speaking that if you disagree with what they say, it's taken as a rejection of the speaker. And so we find ourselves in this situation where respectful disagreement appears to be impossible at least online you know in person it's it's in the real world it's a whole different thing but online it certainly seems like um people you know i get this all the time because people think they know who i am because they've you know read one of my books or they've followed the podcast or whatever it is or they just follow me on twitter or whatever i'll say something and people will be like I can't believe you're saying this coming from the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn. How can you say that like I'm a person? It has nothing to do with the fact that I wrote Sex at Dawn 15 years ago. I'm making an observation on a particular situation and I have no obligation to fulfill your expectations, right? None of us do. And so I think it's an important thing to keep in mind that disagreement is not betrayal. In fact, disagreement is a favor disagreement is a gift because it gives you the chance to think through your position think think about your observation refine it reject it revolutionize it whatever that's that's growth right like if if you're if you believe that disagreement is betrayal then you're never even going to grow cuz you're not going to be able to disagree with yourself right you're not going to be able to say i used to think x and now i think y because i've had these experiences or i've met someone who totally you know disproved my bias or my pres- presumptions growth comes through the process of disagreement with other people with ourselves with our former selves so we need to welcome it the way a uh, You know, the way you welcome a sparring partner when you're studying jujitsu or boxing or whatever you're doing, your sparring partner, yeah, they're kind of going through the motions of fighting with you, but they're helping you. They're dancing with you. They're assisting you. They're teaching you. That's what disagreement is. We need to move away from this idea that disagreement is betrayal. Um, this week I've I've been on three podcasts. None of them have been released yet, but uh, they're coming up. So when I don't record a podcast or when I don't post a podcast for a while, it doesn't mean I'm just sitting around twiddling my thumbs. It may mean that I'm <laughs> twiddling my thumbs, but it may also mean that I'm out doing other people's podcasts or I'm recording podcasts. I've got five or six in the can right now. I'm kind of embarrassed that it's taking this long to post them. Um, I think I recorded this one with Kizzen and Janet probably four or five weeks ago. I have another one with Peter Anderson, another Crestone elder, a poet, a writer, traveler, uh, naturalist, really interesting, beautiful guy. Um, I've got one with Moby and uh, Lindsay, his partner on the, the Moby pod. And uh, who else? Hamilton Morris, who had a show, Hamilton's Pharmacopia uh on Vice Channel, I think for a while. Uh the son of one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, Errol Morris. Really cool guy, really interesting. He's a, a chemist and, and an expert in uh, psycho psychoactive uh compounds. Um so we talk a lot about that. So anyway, uh podcast. Oh yeah, I was on I recorded three podcasts this week. One with Former porn star who was known as Eva a- Lovia, but her real name is Candice Horbosh. I think that's how it's pronounced. Her podcast is called uh, Chatting with Candace. We had a really good conversation on that, uh, on that podcast. She's really smart and open-minded, and, and we talked a lot about... Um, sexuality and evolution and, uh, you know, bonobos and chimps and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, the day before I recorded a podcast with a guy named Ian McKenzie, he's a filmmaker, writer, uh, obviously a podcast host. His show is called Mythic Masculine. And we talked a lot about the sort of crisis of masculinity and in 2023, what's going on. And I think that's a huge issue. And that that thinking sort of bled over into the conversation with Candace as well, um, because I think uh, there's a lot of common ground there. And it was interesting to talk about masculinity and some of the challenges that young men are facing now with, you know, a guy who's, you know, in sort of the men's circle, Robert Bly tradition, and then with a former porn star who are... Ostensibly coming at this from two very different directions, but um, sort of arriving at a lot of the same conclusions, I think. And the other podcast that I, I was a guest on is called the, the Mansley Learning Podcast. That's based out of the UK at a, at a psychiatric hospital, I think. Um, and uh, the host is Alex, uh, what's his last name? I think is his last name. He's a psychiatrist. A very thoughtful guy. Um, and so that was a fascinating conversation as well, if I do say so myself. So I will link to those when they're available. Um, but in the meantime, you might want to just check out those podcasts and uh, get a sense for the vibe. All right, I guess that's about it. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. I, uh, I'm i going to turn you over to Kizen and Janet now. I'm going to play you out with a song I have, I think, played before on the podcast. It's by everybody's favorite, Carcy Blanton. And the song is called Party at the End of the World. And I'm playing this because, A, it's an awesome song. And Carsi is an awesome performer, singer, songwriter, friend. Uh, but also because in this conversation we talk a lot about sort of generational approaches to the discontents of civilization, the the problems we face, the imminent collapse. Uh, At least it feels that way, probably felt that way 40, 50 years ago as well. Uh, Of course, I think there's an objective argument to be made that uh, things are worse now. And, uh, you know, as I said in the last podcast, I think last week we had... Four days in a row that were the hottest days, apparently, in the last 125,000 years, uh, which is how far back we can uh, look with any sort of accuracy. Uh, Things are, are really in a weird state. There's the most severe heat wave on record happening right now in the southwest, some of the worst flooding on record happening in the northeast, uh, shit's weird out there and what do we do i mean this is a recurrent theme on the podcast how do you live a meaningful life with hope and optimism and joy uh when you look around and your critical intelligence tells you that things are in a bad state and getting worse how do you find a way to um uh, To put those two necessities, one for being honest with yourself and the other for finding meaning and joy in life. How do you integrate those? And I think that's something that uh, we talk about in this conversation, and it's something that Carsey is addressing in this song. Party at the End of the World, Carsey Blanton, thank you. Sending much love out to everybody. I hope things are going well for you, and if they're not... I hope you keep in mind that this too shall pass and uh, suck whatever nourishment out of the experience you can while you're having it, even if it's painful and despairing. It'll serve you well later. All right, catch you next time. kitchen of two of Crestone's best-known tool babes. <laughs> <laughs> Janet and Kizen thank you for doing this. Sure. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been really wanting to do being in Crestone is to meet people who've been here a long time and, and get more of a sense of you know what this place used to be like and how it got to be the way it is now and and where you see it going and all that i've done i think i've done two podcasts with Crestone people but three years ago or so when i first got here paul kloppenberg Mm -hmm. did one with him he's a interesting character yeah Mm -hmm. he
3: is he is
2: did yeah. you know that he hitchhiked from Amsterdam to India in 1968 really? when he was 18 years old?
4: I did not know that, but it does not surprise me at all. Yeah,
2: I, I recommend people go back and listen to that. It's in the archives. He's the guy who started the whole end of life. Uh-huh. uh mm-hmm. the oh, yeah, and all he's that. there
0: every time. That yeah. I've been there. Yeah. 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 Firekeeper. Yeah. yeah,
2: fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, you asked earlier how I heard about Crestone, Mm -hmm. and I I didn't tell the story, so maybe that'll be a good introduction. I was living in Spain, and I was reading some American magazine. I think it might have been Outside Magazine. And the story was, 10 funky little towns in America you've never heard of. And one of them was Crestone. Hmm. And the only, it was just a paragraph. And I I remember it said something about there being a bunch of religious centers and retreat, you know, Buddhist meditation kind of places and the open air funeral pyre. And that it was at 8000 feet in the Rockies in Colorado. And I thought, man, if I ever get back to America, I want to go check that place out. That sounds pretty interesting. (laughs) And lo and behold, years later, I didn't I thought I was going to live the rest of my life in Spain. But my dad got ill, and I wrote a book, and it sort of made sense for me to be in the States for a while. Came to the States, and I came to visit Crestone, and so I'm leaving a lot out. But then a few years later, I met a woman, and the first night we were hanging out, I said to her, we are in Los Angeles, and I said, well, what's your plan? What are you doing? And She said, well, I don't know. I'm thinking maybe graduate school or whatever, but my, what I really want to do is I want to buy land in this little town in Colorado— <laughs> And sort of build a place where people can come and hang out when they need to get away. and Or they're working on a book or a painting or whatever. And have little cabins. I said, really? What's the town? Crestone. There yep. you go. And the, that is such a
4: kind of a similar story. Of, of little connections of how people found themselves mm-hmm. coming up the end of this road. Yeah. Just a little, the article somewhere that meets someone. And meets, what, meets somebody. So yeah.
2: you guys have been here what 25 30 years?
4: Something. Oh, I'm at 40. I'm at 35.
2: In Creston or just yeah, in, in Colorado? Creston. No, in, I this closer to no,
4: actually, here I'm 51, I think, in Colorado, central Colorado, but 40 here. Wow, yeah, in Creston. So, yeah, it's a very different world than what it is now here, you know.
2: Yeah, so what I mean, it, it seems just looking at the real estate records and the prices of things. It seems like there was a boom at some point. I mean, I see these crazy prices that people paid for land. Yeah. You know, $100,000, and now it's $20,000, and then it goes back up and down. Yeah, What's causing that?
4: You know, it's something we've seen all along, is, is that boom and bust and boom and bust. We've seen that same pattern happen numerous times because... <laughs> There's something that maybe compels a group of people to come here. Maybe there's a teacher that moved here or some world event that, that says, hey, we need to head back up into the hills. Right. Uh, you know, we had one person here who was a spiritual teacher, and when she came, then a whole bunch of her followers came and bought land here. And, and then when she left, all of that land went on the market or... You know, before Y2K, you know, the prices were really low. But then when Y2K was coming, everybody's like, oh, it's the end of the world. And I guess we should really, you know, head back up into the hills and try to survive the coming apocalypse. And so they come to Crystal, and they bought the land and, it, and the prices all went up again. And then after nothing really happened after that, then living up here is not that easy. Mm. And there's no economy and there. You know, and it's a long ways from anywhere and after a number of years people kinda of move away and mm-hmm. then they sell the land. But yeah, just not that long ago after you know, the, we had prices on the market for years of just houses we're trying to sell and you know, people were underwater with the whole mortgage crisis. We had a lot of homes here that that were sold for what was owed against them or mm. people walked away from. And three years later, it was gone crazy. So, yeah, it's it's happened. It it does this a, a lot here. Yeah. I, I don't know where we're going to go from here now just because the whole nature of how people live their lives have changed. You know, the remote economy. Right. And I think it's made it. More of a of a permanent thing, but you don't move to one of the poorest counties in Colorado in order to make your fortune. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. And people would come here and they'd have big ideas and and made it. It was hard to manifest. Was, you know, this isn't an easy place to live. And we always laughed with the Crestone Eagle newspaper. We would run an ad for a house for sale, and you know, we'd get the money for that ad for a good while, and then it would sell, and then like two years later, the same house would be back up on the market and we'd run an ad for a right. while. And then, you know, each time it kind of edged up a little bit or down a little bit, but we still got the ad. And so <laughs> people asked, how do you stay in business? And we said, oh, it's like, you know, we recycle disillusioned visionaries. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's our renewable I know, we resource. make a little money yeah. when they come and then we make a little money when they go, you know.
2: Right. And, right. That's a growing market. <laughs> yeah.
4: It's true a lot of people a lot of people kind of come and go yeah and and I think a lot of it too it's just you know it's like a lot of places you know you come and you be here for a while and kind of see what it's like and and I don't know it's kind of like a a stop on the game board, and you 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 learn what's here, you rest you you know. Hey, be you know recalibrate your life, and then, and then you're off to something else. And so it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just kind of a, a way station along the way that people come here, and you know they
0: move on. And it seems like people come here, and it's just the right place for them, or it's not the right place at all. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: A lot of people said that to us when we came here. they were like, "Wait a while before you make any long-term plans," because uh-huh. Crestone. Either accepts you or kicks you out, and it's pretty clear which it is. Right.
4: We just ask people to not to to change their name before they move here, <laughs> 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 because it gets really hard that we, you know, you introduce you as something or another, and then after a year here, you have an epiphany and you change your name, and now we have to all learn your new names. So, like, do that ahead of time, if you would, please. And, yeah. <laughs>
0: And the other thing yeah. is, when somebody moves here, they're not allowed to try to change anything for two years.
4: Two years. That's the yeah. It. yeah uh-huh. Five years. Five years. Just listen. Just be here and listen. Just that's the up. other thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't want to hear it. Yeah. But yeah. But that's all. You know, time's different now. So you, you know, it seems like it's three months, and you know, people get get involved in what's going on, which is good which is good. You know, new people bring new energy. And, uh, you know, I've been here long enough that I've seen a lot of changes. People ask me, so how do you feel about that? And, you know, there's some nostalgia about things, about way they... The town used to be, or things used to be, you know there 's nostalgia about me being thirty years old, right. you know and but at the same time, there's just a lot of really good things i mean good people, good people moving here mm. and and so I can't say that i've seen any changes to me that feel bad, yeah. you know it feels like it's going in the right direction, yeah, overall, the concern I probably have the biggest about is the prices of things mm-hmm. uh, make it extremely difficult for people t- who live and work here. You are not going to buy a house here in Crestone on any sort of job that you have in Sawatch County. You know, even the best-paying jobs in Sawatch County will not allow you to buy a house, a three-bedroom, you know, simple house, for $600,000, you know. There's no job here for that will pay you enough money. Yeah. So it makes it really difficult for you know for people who might you know work at the restaurants work at the stores have a small home business to actually afford the housing market here and that's my biggest concern of what's going on we do not have the affordable housing and it used to be so much county was sort of a place you can escape from and build your own house maybe and find affordable housing and now that we've been discovered we're we're really that's the big the biggest growing pain right there yeah as not being able to have the affordable housing. So you look at the old-timers like us that have been here. We call ourselves old-timers. It took me 30 years to be able to call myself an old-timer. And I don't know if the real old-timers would consider me an old-timer at all because I wasn't born here. And
0: Your grandparents weren't born my here My
4: grandparents either. weren't born here. <coughs> but we are fortunate enough to have our own land and our own houses, and you know we're, we're able to be here. What that's going to be like in 20 years, I don't know.
2: Well, even even if you own your own place now, the property taxes are doubling from what I've seen. Yeah. So that could price people out even if they have their own place, you know?
4: Yeah, and that, from what I understand, that was an artificial intelligence judgment call. And I heard something, I don't have the facts on it yet, but Governor Paulus is doing something to overturn this. Oh, really? Because it's just hitting places really hard and it's it doesn't have the for especially like rural places we're not a cookie cutter sort of a neighborhood that every house is is valued the same structures are so completely different pieces of land are so different that we don't fit that model and there's been protests all around this the state within all the different counties saying hey we're not part of this this model you can't just assess us in this cookie cutter fashion. So I think this is going to be overturned and but we still are going to see increased assessments. You know I had, I had to laugh we have a little piece of property over here and last year it was assessed at 11,300 and, and a little less than market value, and I got my tax assessment for $63,000. <laughs> and I called up Pete Peterson, and I'm like, Pete? The assessor. The yeah. assessor, yeah. I said, if you, if you can find me a buyer for that property for $63,000, I'll give you 10%. Right. He's like, yeah, if I could find that, you know, <laughs> we'd have a deal. But, I mean, he totally gets it. Yeah, he totally gets that's it.
2: That's good. I just sent in my my complaint challenge form Mm -hmm. today. Protest, yeah. 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 I
4: sent mine in. I sent
2: mine in the other day. This is all very local news. (coughs) I should mention that the two of you basically have been the heart of the Crestone Eagle for... how long now
4: it was 30 almost 35 years
2: right and you were you were the front person and, and Janet was the, the I was end. the
0: one that came along and corrected the spelling and the grammar <laughs> oh, that's right <laughs> you the came a, I looked, <laughs> in that article I read researching this it, it, it yes. said it wasn't
2: long before Janet I don't know what's your last name Woodman Woodman noticed that the eagle needed a proofreader <laughs> <laughs> like
4: like immediately <laughs> Janet actually is the one who we we were friends then and she did the the mast design the eagle design the bird and, mm. and the whole mast. she did that and and that's part of how you know we became friends but yeah I started the paper in the corner of Living room and yeah, right up the bat, Janet came in with her red pen and said, "I would like to help you uh-huh. with the paper."
0: And, so, and I also had a background in in graphics and okay. publication and so right. forth. So right. yeah, it seemed like a good yeah.
2: And how how did you get here? What what was your backstory, Janet?
0: I was living in Woodstock, New York. Oh yeah, and joined a women's softball team. Third base. huh, wow, third base. And a friend who was on the team came out and bought a ranch in Moffitt and was starting a women's retreat center, which, of course, was unheard of in mm. Moffitt. And Moffitt, which is a little town down the road. I lived there for seven years, and she sold the ranch, and I bought some property here and built a house, and that's how I got here.
2: And just because you... Like when you came here, you just enjoyed the scenery or or there's something spiritual or or what was it that made you... Because Woodstock's a beautiful place. There's a lot going on there. Uh You're close to to New York. You can go and... It's a big change.
0: It is a big change. I just fell in love with the countryside and the mountains and the clear blue sky. Mm. And when I first came out to visit all the sunflowers, all the wild sunflowers were blooming. And we took a trip across the valley to Sawatch, and I was sitting in the back of her pickup truck, and the sun was shining, and the sunflowers were blooming, and the birds were flying, and I just thought, this is heavenly. Mm -hmm. I want to be here. So when she asked me to come and help her run things on the ranch, I, I definitely said yes, and I had had some experience in construction, so Mm. she needed somebody who could help fix things. So
2: it worked out well. I'm I'm detecting a pattern here. You come in and help people do things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're the
0: initiators Uh and I come along and say that's a good idea. I have a tool babe. I can help (laughs) with this. (laughs) <laughs>
2: right, did you grow up in a in a rural area or where did you grow? Up?
0: I grew up in a suburb of New York and then conquered New Hampshire mm. which was about thirty thousand people when I was there right. and But we used to spend our summers in the countryside in in the woods in mm. New Hampshire, and I just loved it there yeah. so yeah i it's you talk about. Going down to New York City from Woodstock, and boy, if anything, I would go further deeper into the Catskills or up right. to the Adirondacks yeah. or somewhere around nature and I lived for lived in suburban New Jersey when I was married to my husband, and I just I felt myself withering mm. and there just wasn 't enough nature yeah, so when I could when we split up, I moved to Vermont and yeah enjoyed vermont when was that that would have been in 79
2: 79 jimmy carter was president was just about to have a big shift it was going to be morning in america i remember i was pumping gas i had a job i was in high school and i was pumping gas during the gas crisis remember when it Mm -hmm. was odd and even license days long lines of cars yeah yeah Yeah, that was that was crazy i i see what's happening now in this country culturally politically economically and it feels to me that it started in 1980 like that's when there was a you know on the one hand you had a guy who said Turn down the thermostat, put on a sweater. We're putting solar panels on the White House. We're going to go metric. You know, just like all this good sense. Let's grow the fuck up already. (laughs) And on the other hand, you had this totally fake, divorced, moral hypocrite, you know, with a gay son he didn't want to talk about. And just like everything was fake.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think that was wow. that's when that's the turning point right there, and <clears throat> I just think it was a, a real cultural black backlash from the '60s and you know hmm. the Civil Rights Act and the feminism and anti-war protesters and there was a real cultural shift that was happening right then. And like you say, solar panels on the White House and and i think it, it did i think it just freaked out a lot of people women need to be in the home and in the house and and you know this moral majority kind of came along and there was it was just a real swing way swing to the right and yeah and you know we had a brief swing to the to the left come in when obama got elected but you know when we got the right to get married which was great but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that 1980 was a big shift. And our and, and our country just, you know, has, I don't think has ever recovered.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it will. I mean, you know, 40 years later, we're still talking about trickle-down economics as if it makes any sense. Hmm. You hmm. know? I mean, just, just last yeah. week, this whole debate about the... Debt limit. They it's go
0: like, over that, we over and over and over. Harder, yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah, can... tighten up on them. No, yeah.
4: no taxes on the wealthy, you know, no more, no more taxes and and all of this stuff about, well, you know, we have to cut, you know, public, you know, spending and, and help within, you know, cut out aid programs, you know. Early childhood education, on and on and on. Uh-huh, and that's All just what we issues. need. And yeah. but let's not, you know, tax the wealthiest people in the country or cut the military.
0: Right. Yeah
4: yeah right. no it's, God it's that. yeah there's there's a reason why we live at the end of the road at the end of the road <laughs> and, and you might notice if you try to use google maps to find our house it will not take you there so we yeah. you know we <laughs> cut a deal there with google over that one well, yeah
2: uh, same thing with where, where we live google thinks it's Westcliff, which is mm-hmm. over, over a, a mountain yeah, range yeah <laughs> if you, again,
4: there was uh, a, you don't
2: want to go to Westcliff by no, accident no
4: a, a few Years back, when Google Maps was newer, much newer, we finally we had a woman show up there. She came into the Eagle office. She just looked <laughs> totally exhausted and fried, and and wanted to make sure she really was in Crestone. And she had come from east somewhere, and. Google had sent her to Westcliff and then her take a county road then up into the National Forest, <laughs> which then turned into a two you know, just a little two track up right. to by the side of San Isabel Peak. And then it said, Walk seven miles <laughs> <laughs> and, like she had this whole thing, and I'm like, did you ever like look at the map and realize there was a fourteen thousand foot one hundred mile range or mountains yeah. between you? No she was just following the direction. Yeah. she finally asked somebody after getting to the top of the mountains <laughs> how to get to Creston and I had to laugh. it was like our, our secret barrier where we, yeah. we were invisible, you know. Yeah
2: did you feel i mean having you know you were in woodstock you were both as we said i think before i started recording like you know you guys were kind of in the party to which there was this backlash in the 80s right this Mm -hmm. um, sort of just opening of of you know relationship models and back to the land movements and disengage from from the sort of dominant culture in in any way you could and i'm not you personally but the counterculture movement it to me it kind of feels like do you ever read what was it hunter s thompson's book about california and he, he he has this image of like the the wave of hope and optimism and change that kind of washed over california and it got to the rockies and it it crested and then it washed back (laughs) down into the ocean and everyone thought it was going to wash across the country but it didn't (laughs) do you ever feel like the 70s was was like an expression of of the ideas of the 60s sort of souring in a way you know like Hmm. from my perspective i see all the hope and beauty and and kindness and optimism of nineteen, say sixty four to sixty seven or something, but then the seventies, free love became key parties, and and you know psilocybin became quaaludes, and you know as I hmm. said earlier, the Beatles became the you know the Bee Gees, and it's like it seemed like the the dominant culture took these beautiful things and commodified them and drained the beauty out of them and yeah and that's what the the revolution the Reagan revolution was reacting to
4: you know and and I I think you know I look at, at when I was in high school in the 60s and I was classified as one of the hippies and You know, we had a a large graduating class. It was, you know, inner city of Chicago, and it was a very large class of people. I want to say several hundred or this sort of thing. But probably maybe only a dozen of us were like hippies. And so while you know, that whole cultural thing made a great big splash in Woodstock and and in all of the music and all that. It was really only a small percentage of the population. Mm. Overall, the vast majority of the population were not living in Greenwich Village or Haight-Ashbury. You know, they were in St. Louis or you know, Birmingham or whatever, but they, it was not all the way across the country. It wasn't as large of a movement as it appeared you know and yes everybody listened to the to the music and but the vast majority of the population it was like okay that was an awful lot of fun and we all kind of grew our hair long and we smoked pot now we're going to go get a job and we're going to go into the society and try to earn a living and it's like the party's over and the the people who really kind of had that vision moved into places in life where they were either trying to make a, a difference, you know, went and continued their education, but a lot of it was just this mass inertia of society that... Could not be just changed by all of us getting together and singing songs mm. it It wasn't in some ways it wasn't big enough to deal with this whole societal inertia that that was really there It was like a it was like a a, a time period of fireworks that was just wonderful and then things had to take root, and then you get into the slog. And that's what I see. It was like we all believed that if we just kind of wished enough, it would all happen. You know, imagine all the people. Okay, we're going to imagine all the people. Now we have to pick up the shovels and the hammers and we have to do the really hard work of trying to make this dream come true. And while it was being squashed, by big government, by big oil, by big coal, by religion, by the patriarchy, by everything who had been in control. It was like, you're a bunch of teenage hippies. We can squash you easily. And so you saw some people go into politics, try to make a difference. Some of us headed for the hills, the countryside, because we could not survive in the cities. We needed to take what we knew, and had to walk our talk. And that was the thing. Okay, so we want everybody to, you know, stop using pesticides and eat organically. Okay, now we need to go grow and have the farm. Well, growing a farm is hard work. Mm -hmm. It's really hard work, and so you have to walk the talk. And I think part of that's what happened is, is there was a huge opposition to things. Plus, you know when you're young you just think that if you just wish upon the star it's going to make it true and you know you have to do the work What? and and I think that's part of what happened in the 70s it's like okay let's just create a different party and mm. and yeah we went to the Bee Gees which I kind of like the Bee Gees, yeah, against the Bee Gees. I, I get out there and dance I mean, All right. but I mean and, Saturday
2: Night Fever
4: oh, I know Staying alive, staying alive. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. But yeah, but it's, it's not the revolution, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's not yeah. the revolution. And I
0: think an awful lot of the hippie kids came from middle class families. Yeah, they didn't repair cars and work the farm and do all those things, so they didn't necessarily know what work was.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it doesn't. You, you know, there again. <laughs> What you just said about when you're just a working person, being able to go and protest all day is a bit of a luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like trying to have these noble causes is a bit of a luxury when you need to just put food on the table. Yeah. And and it when it came around again with Obama in the office, I really felt such hope like, OK, these seeds that were planted are finally bearing fruit. and you know, all of a sudden we had gay rights and we had more women's rights and there was more racial equality coming around and we were just extremely optimistic about what yeah. was going on. And then, oh man, that shit hit the fan. Yeah. I could not believe it. I could not believe it.
2: Yeah, I have or had three Obama shirts, you know, the hope and change. And Yeah. I haven't worn them. I mean, I probably wore them once each and and then it's like well this guy's like you know the whistleblowers go into prison the the drone attacks in pakistan and it's like i i still think obama i still think i'd really enjoy sitting down and talking and hanging out with him and i think i think michelle loves him which you know that's i i look at the family Mm -hmm, like it mm -hmm. how how does the you know how do those kids feel about him and and it's like, well they love him. He's mm-hmm. I think but even a really decent guy in this in this situation, I think it it's what you said about inertia. You can't stop the military industrial complex. You can't stop capitalism and big oil and mm-hmm. it's gonna do what it does. Yeah. I, I, I have this I had this conversation with my father, who worked for corporations and and he used to say to me, you know, but I know people who work at Raytheon, and they're good people. And eventually, you know, I I helped, I, I feel bad about this, actually, because I ended up winning the argument, but it kind of made him sad, which is that it doesn't matter if they're good people. The corporation controls the people. The people don't control the corporation. Mm-hmm, yeah. So you can, you know... As I said to my dad, somebody could go to Peru with his kid, take ayahuasca, have a epiphany, come in Monday morning and say, we've got to stop drilling in the ocean. This is crazy. We can't protect the the natural environment. And he would be out of a job by lunch. Mm-hmm. Right? So right. you can't. No well, and, and, you know, for us
4: to trying to explain to, say, like you know, my adult children or even my grandchildren, they look at the boomers, and it's like, you destroy the world, and why didn't you do anything? And it's like, okay, I've been screaming from the rooftop since I was 15, you know, know, whether it's going to protest, whether it's voting, you know, on and on and on of really trying to work for change. And, you know, what did we do? We were outnumbered. We were just flat-out outnumbered. And this trying to make real long-lasting change it's so hard and i but i look forward to younger people who who i don't know maybe have more of a majority vote maybe in crisis people become activated and they and they get out and do more. Mm. For years, I was wondering, why aren't people all protesting? You know, the whole war in Afghanistan and Iraq and the shock and all. Why? It was my generation. We were in the streets by the millions. Why is nobody protesting this that's going on? What, what happened? And, you know, having conversations with the generation younger than me. It's like, Mom, we have got a mortgage and we have children mm-hmm. and we have this job and there's nowhere in our life that we can go and protest and we don't think it's going to do any good anyways.
2: And also, uh, since there's no draft, we don't know anyone who's yeah. in Afghanistan yeah. or who's died. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. really affect us. It's a different us. world. Yeah. yeah.
4: It's different. But I, I do... <laughs> I, I joke, I call myself a... An apocaloptimist, <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs>
4: which basically means good. that you know it's all going to hell, but it's going to work out in, for the good anyway. <laughs>
2: I'm going to steal that one. That's great. I, I've often described myself as an optimist, you know, wrapped in a pessimist inside a hope, a hope, you know, a layer of hope. It's like, yeah, it's all fucked up and collapsing, but it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I wrote a book, actually, I brought you a copy called Civilized to Death. And it's, it's a sort of a study of how civilization affects quality of life. And one of the things I learned is every complex civilization that's ever existed has collapsed. Yeah. But that's generally led to an improvement in quality of life for most people. So we, you, we think it's a disaster when a civilization collapses because who writes the history? The elites, right? Things definitely get worse for them. But for the average person, things get a lot better. There's one section, there's a beautiful book called Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Who's, you may have heard of her. She's well known. And she studied disaster sociology. And she interviewed all these people who study how humans react to disasters. And what she found was that this entire discipline has come to the conclusion that people who live through disasters remember it as the best time in their lives. Hmm.
4: Because people come together and they help one another, That's and you it. have a common bond that you live through this, and all of the rest of the bullshit is kind of forgotten. It's just into a survival mode. Exactly, and, and right. uh, it cuts yeah.
0: away the surp- fluidity. Yeah, yeah. The su- well, and and, <laughs> and and you talk
4: about you know the breakdown of, of civilization actually being better. I think it was Ruth Ginsburg who said that we're simply asking you to take your your. Was it your feet or your boots off our neck? Mm. And and that's it. So much of what is you look at the larger government is a lot about suppression, a lot about you know holding holding populace down. Yeah. And you know, and so you 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 know, you I don't look forward to any sort of chaos happening, not at all, because I feel like there's just too many crazy people out there. But change, change is really happening, and you're right. You know, you look at what happened after any kind of revolutions. There was a time of incredible chaos, and then there was things that were shifted. And I just hope that we don't have to get to that sort of point before people, you know, change. Or wake up, which now we have woke is really a bad word. I mean, I, I kind of posted on Facebook the other day, What is this about woke? I keep hearing it all the time that now woke is like a bad thing. And it's like, okay, everybody like wake up. We have climate disasters going on and wake up to, you know, some of the societal issues that we have. I mean, like kids are being killed every day. It's like, can we wake up about this now? Woke is a bad term. That one freaks me out Hmm. when any sort of actual awareness of what's happening in the world or in your own neighborhoods or in society, or the crises that we're facing, and you want to talk about that. Well, you're woke, and that's a right. bad thing. I'm like, oh, no. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, There's a reason that, that there, again, that we, you know, for myself, I, I, I backed out as much as I could over the broader society just to keep sanity. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, my, I mentioned that my partner, Anya, has a podcast. She's much younger than me. She's a millennial, and her podcast is called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. And it's, I'd love you guys maybe do a podcast with her at some point because she comes at these things from a very different perspective. But what she, it's semi-ironic, the, the title of the podcast, but basically what she's saying is forget saving the world save yourself, save your friends create your world in such a way that it reflects your values Mm -hmm,
3: mm -hmm. and
2: then let that emanate out Mm -hmm. into the greater world as opposed to starting out, what was the line in the 60's, think globally, act locally locally, Mm -hmm. think
4: globally, act locally I don't think she's
2: ever heard that expression
4: and you (laughs) know that's kind of in a way as a core of of Crestone and why so many people are here and these isolated pods of places where people gravitate to commonality of a light mind and that's a lot behind Crestone is that acting locally you know, that you see the people who have come here, not just here, you know, places like Paonia and a lot of the smaller communities where they're looking at how do we be more food self-sufficient? How right. do we live lightly on the land? How do we start a recycling center? It's like, we're, all right, we're not going to try and get the the. U.S. Senate to do recycling. We're going to create a recycling center in our own town. We're going to grow right. our own food, or we're going to start a charter school, and we're going to, you know, teach our a children newspaper. this way. Start a newspaper, yeah. report on what we feel is important, and and I think that that is is crucial. You know, Janet likes to listen to the pioneers a lot, and so much of that is about, you know, people who whether individually or as small groups, Margaret Mead with her famous quote about a small group of people could change the world. And and here we are doing things like the longest continuing energy fair it used mm-hmm. to be called the Creston Alternative Energy Fair until it was no longer an alternative. It was, you know, solar energy went mainstream. And... You know those the dedicated groups of people making changes, and Crestone is a real example about, okay, we need to have this happen, so let's make it happen. You know, we need to have a food bank, let's create a food
2: bank. It's you a know? manageable size, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's what drew us right. here uh, yeah. among many other things,
4: right? And it, when things get too big, they get sort of institutionalized, right? But. I do feel like this is where a lot of the positive change in the world comes from is smaller communities making a difference within their own region, and there's only you know there's only so much you can do I can't do much as far as the the you know state or federal level on things, but I've been on the Crestone Town Council for about twenty four years. And I I got on the town council because I just didn't want anybody telling me what to do, and so I was like (laughs) going to be on the town council to tell other people make sure that (laughs) you know we were you know any rules that were passed are ones that we can live with, and went from being like very anti-government to like being the government, Mm -hmm. and it has been an amazing learning experience Mm -hmm. uh, to say okay how do. How do we govern ourselves? And it's crucial. How do we come to agreement on things? It's like I kind of played around with some little communal sorts of things and tell you that does not work. And, you know, there's <laughs> there's the hard workers and the people who are like, yeah, i kind of busy today, mm-hmm. um, but let me know when when the food comes in, I'll show up. So communal stuff, I'm not a real... Well, it just never worked for me. I don't know other people make it work, but how do we govern ourselves? In is is crucial, and on a local level, that's when you could really make a huge difference. You, I'm so proud of like the governance in Sawatch County on some of the issues that they're taking on, and they're like the mouse that roared over some different things. This, you know, the people in Crestone, people in Sawatch County, is in the town of Sawatch have done things that changed state law because of their activism. The whole San Luis Valley is a lot of environmental activism has helped change water law in Colorado by their activism that was small and strong that forced changes on higher levels. So it's that grassroots activism. And... This is where I've seen change really happen, it is at that grassroots level that just grows and grows and grows. Right. You know? Well,
2: that's what I was getting at when, when you said, you know, this is one of the reasons I disengaged and sort of, you know, took myself out of the the tumult of, of revolutionary politics or whatever it was. You know, before we started recording, you showed me around your property here. You guys have a beautiful garden. You have an orchard. You have, you're keeping bees. You've got honey. You've got... Pollinators. You've got a well. You've got a beautiful view. I mean, you've created a world. You're living in a reconstituted log cabin from the 1800s. I mean, this is awesome, right? But it's it doesn't need to be global. It doesn't need you. And and then your work in the newspaper and I mean, you're in the local government. Like you're exemplifying the values. Well, right? Thank you,
4: thank you. And I find that, dear Gan, you know whether it's being being a mentor you know we were fortunate both of us we've had people who helped mentor us and things and to be able to create the sort of things that we believe in and and then show people okay yeah you you actually really can grow broccoli at this altitude this is how you do it you know and it's like oh yeah look at this garden how do you do that and and You do. You make a a, a small difference in a small circle, you know, the ripples that spread outward. And, you know, hopefully people will learn. And, you know, we've we've learned step by step. Mm -hmm. We've been fortunate that a lot of people helped us to achieve what you see here. And and it's all really pretty much recycled and very funky and it took like thirty years to create. <laughs> you <know>? uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But right. it's thank you for saying that. It's it is we're we're very fortunate to live in such a, a special place and you know, I, I love this I th- piece I think of think People
2: property. get stuck because they look at the top of the mountain and they say that's where I wanna be and they don't look at the path in front of them and take steps to get there. Mm-hmm. So they just spend their whole lives saying, I wish I were up there. And and I think we need more people who are, who are, have some humility in, in their approach to changing the world and, and start in their, their garden. I think Voltaire wrote a book year you know, 1700s where Candide kept saying he wanted to change the world and his, teacher just said tend your garden yeah right like deal with your shit (laughs) don't worry about everyone else's shit like start a newspaper in your town or join Mm -hmm. the the city council or plant Mm -hmm. broccoli or Mm -hmm. you know raise animals get some chickens and give eggs to your neighbors like start there yeah and spread from that
4: you know we have a friend who worked for with you know, USAID and different aid organizations in Africa. And she had said that in one of the communities she was at, a very, very poor community, they were doing some work, that people had a saying is that small, small makes big. Mm. And I I just love that saying, small, small makes big. And sometimes we want to start off with the big, and that just becomes like overwhelming and impossible. So do the small, small. right? And, you know, the step-by-step and... And you know, you eventually do make
0: progress, and uh, you know, and it can be started by such a small thing as smiling at a stranger. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. The and next building. Stranger too.
4: Yeah, and building community. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're primates, and a community is just essential to us. You know, at our heart, we. You know, ostracism is the worst, being alone or being rejected is mm-hmm. like the worst thing that can happen to us as a primate. We hunger for our tribe, for our community, and and I think that is so essential. It's one of the things we have here as part of a community, but, you know, you go over to Sawatch, they have their community. You You see it a lot in rural areas, or you see where people create it through different organizations or even religions or things that they belong to that sense of community is so important. And I think part of the madness that we see in the world is because people have lost a sense of belonging and a belonging to something that's real. You know, Marge Piercy has a poem that's called To Be Abuse that I just love, but it, it talks about, and hands cry out for work that is real. Mm. And that... At the center of, of change that happens. It happens in community. And as long as we could keep a community strong and moving in the right direction and that happens around the world, then there's a chance for for positive change. But I do feel like it's you know it has to be on a local a local level.
2: yeah there there's also a, a kind of a lifeboat quality to it i think where when collapse comes people are going to be looking for examples of how to live how to grow food how to take care of chickens how to deal with your neighbors how to organize small scale Mm -hmm. communities Mm -hmm. and so even if the things that people are doing on these small scales aren't necessarily emanating out into the world right now it's almost like like you're keeping a fire and other people can come and light their sticks on it and go in their way, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, what I mean?
4: Mm-hmm. So you,
2: I think it's really important to to have examples of these sorts of things.
0: My concern is that we will, it won't happen soon enough, that we've got global warming and you're seeing disasters happening all over the world. And pretty soon... The governments, the big, the big forces, are not going to be able to keep up with them. And we just seem to be fighting harder and harder against yeah. each other.
2: Yeah, in America, that seems to be what's happening. I saw yesterday, Californ- in California, the large insurance companies are no longer writing home insurance policies. Oh, yeah. yeah,
4: State Farm went ahead and said that, that no, they're maintaining their their current ones, but they won't take on any more right. house ones. Mm. Too much. Yeah. Too,
0: yeah. Many fires, yeah, that's, too many fires. Too many slides. Yeah. That's what I'm afraid of, is that we're really going to fall into chaos.
2: Right. But then that's what drives... I, I feel like people won't voluntarily disengage from the system. They need to be forced. Mm. And once they do, they need to have examples of... Where do you go? Yeah. Where do you go? What do you do? How do you feed yourself? Mm-hmm.
4: So yeah. there again are alternatives. Are we looking at some sort of a semi-utopian society where it's love and peace and, you know, everybody is just really happy? Or is it AK-47s <laughs> and militia? Yeah. And I'm both. what concerns me is that is there again this craziness that seems to be happening in the red states of... Everybody being armed to the teeth and let's take rights away from pretty much everybody you know, especially people of color and people who are gay and women so like really we're we're going back a hundred years in in our our culture, and i I find this scary, you know. Yeah. You know, Janet and I were an old lesbian couple, and nobody cares what old women do. You know, we we're not on people's radar. We can we can go right through the screening at the airport, and they yeah. don't even you know yeah. they just don't even look at us, and you know, like just move along, keep moving along, and and so we we kind of move through the world with a certain amount of safety just because we're not interesting and yeah, you know we don't we don't draw the mm-hmm. predator's eye you know you know the invisibility of older women can be very helpful at times mm-hmm. but
2: you'd be perfect terrorist oh i know, <laughs> Drug I know. did you ever read
4: the no. mrs polypex mysteries mrs no. polypex so she was recruited by what the cia or something carry out missions because nobody would ever suspect her
3: right. yeah
4: she was just a you know, an elder gardener. You know, and we got the garden gloves. We, you know, we could yeah, work this well, out. That's, yeah, 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 we could. But it's it, it's it's a very real concern that what's happening in our society with with the amount of guns, the amount of anger, the amount of stripping away of several liberties. It's it's rather terri- terrifying, and and women's rights. It's. It's and I feel like it's coming to a head, and what's hmm. how that's going to manifest? I don't know. And truthfully, it just sends me back to the garden, mm-hmm. you know, back to planting more tomatoes because yeah. I don't know what to do about it, and you know how do how do we deal with that sort of like just bonker craziness that's going on right now. And I and I, I look at what's the cause of it. I mean, sociologists are, are all studying all of this. You have a combination of this people acting out of fear at the same time that you're having records amounts of flood and records amount of drought and you have incredible tornadoes that are just make, taking a whole swath of cities where is that leading us to?
2: Right. And the technology that's that's fracturing <laughs> society, and, and teenagers exp- have more depression and anxiety yeah. and suicide. And then
0: yeah. we have AI.
2: Right. Now, now that's something <laughs> to be scared <laughs> that's of. That's going to save us. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: I, I think, is it going to save us or destroy us? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well,
2: but... I was yesterday, I, I did a podcast with a guy named Hamilton. Morris, who is the son of Errol Morris, the filmmaker. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's he's a friend of Werner Herzog. Errol Morris's films are amazing, Pet Cemetery, and he he did one about Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense in the '60s, who prosecuted the war in Vietnam, who late in his life sort of changed his mind and realized that he was a mass murderer. Yeah. 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 It's called The Fog of War. It's a very moving film. Anyway, Hamilton's very interested in psychedelics. And he's traveled all over the world and, and researched psychedelic mind-altering substances. And He's an ethnobotanist. And we were talking about how there's sort of a second wave mm-hmm. psychedelic movement now. Yeah. And you know, like I was saying earlier, that image of the wave coming up hmm. and cresting mm-hmm. and going back. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's another wave coming in terms of psychedelics, in terms of back to the land, rejection of, of corporate food manufacturing. And people are looking for alternative ways to live their lives. And so I kind of, I wonder, do you feel like, do you see that? Do you see that Maybe there's a resurgence of some of the values of the 60s and early 70s, but they're coming back now a little chastened maybe by the excesses and the mistakes that were made the first time and maybe with a better chance of of making more headway because we don't have Timothy Leary saying, everyone should take acid immediately and we're going to change the world. We There's not that kind of like crazed enthusiasm. You
4: know, yeah. And yeah, the part of the plan in the sixties was to like introduce LSD into large cities, water supplies, you know, maybe could, you know, blow everyone's mind and wake them all up. And no, I, I do I do see this actually. We've had some conversations recently with some folks about things like microdosing and and the therapy that's now happening with the psilocybin mushrooms and the controlled therapy, Colorado's passed laws now to make that legal, and how they're really seeing trauma being heated, healed through that, yeah. uh, trauma being healed to clear brain pathways and working with veterans or. To people who've suffered trauma as a as a mental health tool, and I find that really encouraging. I mean, that's what happened with LSD. How it started off to be, you know, a, a psychotropic that would help with mental mental health therapy, and and so yeah, I see that coming back around, and with more of a kind of a controlled aspect to it, and I find that very encouraging. That yeah. that maybe that could lead to some sanity or it can treat trauma and certainly it just shows a different way of approaching the same problem over and over again that let's 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 try something else maybe this will work so i find it encouraging but as you say it's not like this big fireworks flash of of you know everybody you know drop 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 in and drop out or yeah. yeah, what was that? Turn on to turn on, turn on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And but I I I I think there's a lot to be said for it, and the fact that we look at what happened with with marijuana, with two states first going with a medical, I mean, going with a medical marijuana, and that sort of just Opened up a door. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just opened up a door that has been nailed shut for decades, and then went with the recreational marijuana, which was, of course, going to collapse society as we know it. Didn't happen. Yeah, you know, it just did not lead to greater crime, and you know, it it actually, you know, other than state coffers having a lot more money, it did <laughs> not really seem to destroy society and so i i am encouraged by yeah by that
2: and, and isn't that reflected also in in other ways right like in terms of what you said about you know communes and the sort of free love we're all going to you know chip in and own the place together and everything's going to be wonderful i think young people now know that doesn't work <laughs> so yeah. young people are saying wait a minute maybe what we could do Is we could invest in some land and each have our own house.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. We're not going to sleep with each other's partners, maybe you know, or maybe we will, but that'll be separate from the finances, you know. I feel like, I, I mean, I'm not a particularly hopeful person, so I'm grasping at straws here, but I feel like maybe one thing that is hopeful is that people coming up now can look to. I have a friend named Lloyd Kahn. He was the shelter editor of the whole earth catalog. Remember? Mm. Oh yeah. I had a copy. No, Mm -hmm. me too. So did I. I. That was one of my favorite books, the big I love that book. (laughs) Yeah, that's sick. Anyway, Lloyd's in his eighties now. He's a wonderful man. And he he sort of started the tiny house movement, Uh which now is, you know, everywhere. But he for years was building geodesic domes. He was the geodesic dome guy. You know, he knew Buckminster Fuller, he went all over the world doing and one day he looked and he said, you know what, this really, these aren't very good to live in. They leak, the tolerances are really bad, it's a great idea in theory, but in practice it just doesn't work. And to his credit, he let go of it and he said, I'm sorry, I just don't do that anymore, now I'm doing this. And I, can't, I feel like there's something, like that's a microcosm of what I'm trying to say, that people are learning from the mistakes of that first wave.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I I certainly hope so, and 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 I don't know, really, I, I don't think people come like to interview me and say, "So your generation kind of blew it, you know? What did you learn from their <laughs> mistakes?" I mean, I've never been asked that question. Well, you're
0: a, an old woman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that uh, your you opinion. <laughs> so,
4: but I I what I feel is, I don't know if I'm. A collective consciousness is maybe not the right word, but it's getting closer to that. When I look at the younger people, and I look at like my grandchildren that are now of the Gen Z, the Zoomers, they are so interconnected with the world, and they're their society, their generation in a way that we never were through the Internet, through whether it's YouTube or TikTok or whatever, you know, methods that they're using, they're biracial, they're you know by gender they are so open to new people and new ideas and new cultures they're not as isolated Mm. it's you know they don't even notice that their friend is white and filipino and hispanic and italian you know it's just not a thing anymore for so many of them and they have this That's not important. You know, our generation, my generation, there was so much about race and gender, were Mm -hmm. key issues at the time of race and gender. And in some ways, while we're still kind of battling for women's rights and racial rights, the younger people are in so many ways colorblind and genderblind. And that's where I see big changes coming because they, they don 't recognize those barriers that are being thrown up they 're not buying into them mm. they 're carving out their own individuality as a generation, and they 're just simply saying no we 're not going to be that way and they're they're forcing you know, you look at commercial advertising you know in the mm. last few years now. You know, all kinds of races are are being shown, and it's and the use of they and them has just become normal, and I so I think that that generation. You're right. I don't so much if they're they're really examining where our mistakes are, other than they kind of almost intuitively know what works and what doesn't Mm. work. Just because they grew up with a different level of connectivity to each other Mm -hmm. that just binds them together all around the world. And
0: I wonder if we could take a break for a few minutes.
2: Okay. All right, we are back. In in our break there we were talking about interesting characters in Crestone and and sort of unique characteristics of the community in the town. And you mentioned Christine.
4: Yeah. You know, this has been a real activist community, very activist. And, you know, one of my own personal heroes is Christine Canale, and she's head of the SLV Ecosystem Council. And many years ago, we were, we were faced, we've had numerous sort of environmental threats to the San Luis Valley. But there was a, an organization called American Water Development that wanted to come in and basically suck the water out of the valley and sell it to the Front Range. And they were a huge, well-funded corporation. And a group of local people formed that was called Citizens for San Luis Valley Water at the time. And Chris Canelli took on a lead role on that, her and her husband, Mark Jacoby. And that she joined and, and the group expanded to where she... And a large number of people basically won the case for keeping the water in the valley. And it really united the whole valley, ranchers to the southern end of the valley, to the northern end of the valley. It was a commonality. And Christine Canale has hung in here for the last, like, 35 years dealing with environmental issues, whether we had an oil company that was trying to drill oil over our wildlife refuge, to where we had the Colorado Air National Guard was going to change their MOA, military operations area, to basically use this side of the Sangre de Cristos, all the way over, crest down over the sand dunes, as a target practicing area. And they were flying very low-level flights, like 500, 300 feet above town, Chris Connelly was one who was there again. Another open space alliance was formed and her and another several dozen people just fought them. And and we as a Crestone Eagle, month after month after month, we put this story on the front page. And this is independent journalism, you know. We we hammered on this like we did with AWDI and we hammered on them with the Open Space Alliance and and we ended up fighting the this was the Calvo Air National Guard plus the U.S. Air Force. We fought them to a standstill until they finally moved their military operations area over the San Luis Valley, over the agricultural area, rather than over sensitive places like the sand dunes and Crestone and the wildlife refuge. So she is is really one of my heroes. They're still they issue after issue. You know, for a lot of even bigger governmental agencies, you mentioned Christine Canelli and everybody just almost surrenders immediately because it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, Chris is involved. She's not going to stop fighting. She's mm-hmm. one of our local heroes. So she's somebody that I have a huge amount of respect for. and And we have. We've had, you know, a lot of different characters here, as you do in a mountain town. People are kind of hermits or... You mentioned earlier Paul Kloppenberg. Uh, People might not realize he's responsible for that billboard out on Highway 17 that kind of went up anonymously 20 years ago about, you know, saving our Mother Earth. And it was just a big image. It wasn't selling anything. It was just like a picture of the Earth and that said, you know, save our Mother. He's also the one who was a key starter of the Creston and the Life Project. So we've got these people who... There again, that acting locally, acting locally, making a huge impact in their life. You know, people who started like the Crystal Music Festival, Tom DeSain carrying that for like twenty years. I don't know, Jan. Can you think of other people you feel like have really made a difference here? No. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> Janet's on uh, the
2: spot. Oh, uh, uh,
4: oh, but. Uh, I think that there are indeed groups of people like what's happening now with Living Wisdom that have worked for years to try to create affordable housing, neighbors helping neighbors that really assist people and homegrown activist groups that yeah. have really made a difference.
2: Right. Yeah. And the the Crestone Freebox Box is oh, yeah. such a cool thing. Yeah. I helped them in the renovation of that. And it's just so nice to have a dozen people get together and yeah. like, oh, we're going to put a new roof on this. and yeah. And just a place where you can leave things. And if someone needs something, you know, yeah. drop by and you yeah. might find it there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's
4: been going for about 30 years. Yeah. Yeah and sometimes it's just an awful mess and and yet half my clothes come from there so yeah. <laughs> I thought I recognized that shirt. Yeah, I know. They're wearing my shirt. Yeah, it's recycle reuse and, and I I have to laugh there's been times where I like I found a t-shirt, you know, or something, oh, that would be perfect for so and so and I'd go ahead and bring it to that person. They say, "I just put that in the free box. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of that.
2: But you have a good sense of people. Yeah, for yeah. And then they're like
4: yeah. and I kind of regretted it. Let me take that
2: back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That you mentioned it. <laughs> well, listen, I don't want to take up more of your time. I really appreciate you letting me come to your kitchen and pick your brains for a while. Yeah, it and, was uh,
4: really nice to have you come. Yeah, yeah. No, it it's was really great, enjoyable. And I
2: just want to, you know, thank both of you for making this, doing your your part to make this such a cool, funky little town. Well,
4: and you are most welcome, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Thank you. Okay.
2: Thanks.